Well, thank you, John, for your welcome. I, I'm uh, just by way of uh, explanation, uh, just awaiting a new knee in my uh, left leg and uh, um, have no cartilage between the bone at all. So if you hear things crunch while I'm <laughs> preaching, uh, this is just to provoke sympathy, really. Uh, but uh, that explains why I'm, uh, why I'm sitting down. Always great to be with you. Thank you. And uh, humbled by those welcomes and introductions. Thank you, John, very much. Great to be here to share about the incarnation, whatever that might be, <laughs> this morning. Let's turn and read immediately from Matthew's Gospel. It's the first book in what we call the New Testament, the second half of the uh, Bible. And uh, Matthew is one of uh, three gospel writers who tell a very similar story. The fourth gospel writer, John, comes at the whole life of Jesus somewhat differently. But Matthew, uh, Mark, and Luke uh, go over familiar ground from their own viewpoint. And this is what Matthew chapter 1 says about the birth of Jesus. Verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she gave birth to a son. And then he called his name Jesus. For absolutely years, my Christmas was ruined because my mother insisted on watching The Sound of Music yet again. <laughs> I tried everything to avoid it, uh, but realized at the end of the day I'd been defeated when I actually knew every song within the musical, even though I'd never sat through the whole thing at one time. And you may recall the, the song in it, What Do You Do With a Problem Like Maria? Uh, well, as you read the lyrics, on the whole, it seems to me that Maria is simply just a boisterous, rumbustious uh, young lady, a bit of a tomboy maybe, but doing exactly what you'd hope vigorous uh, and uh, uh, their own personality young ladies will do, rather than just a, a quiet conformist. Oh, that's the odd thing that stretches the imagination in the song. How do you catch a cloud and pin it down? How do you hold a moonbeam in your hand? But what do you do with a problem like Maria? 
I tell you, the problem of Maria is nothing in comparison with the problem that God had when it came to this earth that he had created. What do you do with a problem like the earth and the humanity that occupies it? God made human beings in his own image and he made the earth to be good, richly resourced, sufficient for all its needs. A perfect environment in which good men and women could live and grow up. But somehow or another, alien presences got in and begin, began to destroy what God had made. And death and corruption reigned everywhere, getting an ever firmer hold, undoing and destroying the work that God had done. The human race was in the process of destruction. What was happening to God's creation and God's creatures was monstrous and unfitting. The goodness of God was being brought to absolutely nothing. And the annoying thing was it was happening because of an alien presence, uh, amongst other things, the devil, who had no right to uh, be influencing God's creation, but chose to deceive human beings. So human beings, either in varying degrees of lostness or of outright rebellion, became distant from God. And unless God was going to lose the whole of his creation, somehow he had to come up with a solution. What do you do with a problem like a fallen earth? What do you do? with a problem like fallen human beings? What do you do when all your good handiwork is being undone and destroyed? Well, Matthew tells us, amongst other people, what the solution was. God designed a solution, but it needed to be designed in a particular way, not an ordinary way. And that's where the details of this little uh, paragraph in Matthew's gospel towards its beginning comes in. He develops the story of Jesus coming into the world to answer not only what you do about the problem, but why God's solution was so good, and does so in three particular movements. He draws our attention, first of all, to uh, a remarkable conception that took place when Jesus was born, hopefully things will begin to come up on the screen, a remarkable conception. And uh, it was necessary not uh, that any ordinary birth took place, but this very unique and unusual birth took place. Stand back uh, underneath all the tinsel and the baubles and the presents and the wrapping paper and, and just think what's going on here. Um, God risks his rescue plan of the world to a teenage girl. Mary would presumably have been about 12, 13, 14 at the time. That was the normal age in which Jewish girls got betrothed. And she was betrothed. It's one of those 
hallowed ancient words, isn't it? She was contracted to marry Joseph, who probably, if it was a normal sort of arrangement in a Jewish culture, probably would have been no more than 18 at the time. And uh, their engagement was more than our engagement. It was a very real commitment. For a year, they'd be planning their wedding. Uh, they would have avoided completely any sexual intercourse, but they were firmly committed to one another. And then everything got thrown into chaos as far as Joseph was concerned. Because Mary somehow becomes pregnant. How on earth did that happen? Well, it's all part of God's remarkable plan. She becomes pregnant because uh, uh, she is fertilized. Her human egg is fertilized not by a fellow human being, but by the Holy Spirit. That's a remarkable thing, isn't it? Uh, there were rumors in the ancient world about virgin births. But none of them, when you begin to penetrate the stories, have any evidence or any backup or any reality to them, except this one. Both Mary and Joseph, by all accounts, were devout Jewish people who lived disciplined and restrained lives and had not engaged in any way in sexual intercourse to this point. And yet this virgin, and there is no doubt that the word that Matthew and others choose very much is making it clear that she was a virgin at the time. This virgin conceives and becomes pregnant. And God risks his plan of rescuing the world to this young teenage woman and her intended husband. That's remarkable, isn't it? It, it was vital when you think of it. You know how when you build a bridge, well, perhaps you don't. I've no experience of building bridges, <laughs> but I've watched it happen from time to time on the news at least and read the odd thing about it. Uh, and you know when you build a bridge, you actually build it from both sides at once and it meets, you hope, in the middle. <laughs> and that's exactly what's going on here. Uh, if God was to rescue the world... He needed to combine the, the Godward side and the human side so that they would perfectly meet in the middle. If it had just come from one side and not the other, well, it would have been deficient in some way. If the solution was simply a divine one, God stepping in his fullness into this world and not becoming a human being, we'd have spent our lives wondering whether he really did understand or really did effectively work salvation. Uh, uh, I'm somewhat of a, an odd character in that I do have a sneaking respect for the Prince of Wales, uh, Prince Charles. He's done some remarkable charity work. I know most people uh, are, are somewhat cynical about him, uh, but I think he's actually achieved a, a, a great deal in a very difficult role. Um, but the truth of the matter is, however good the prince's trust is, 
whatever it does to help those who are unemployed or young people who might go the wrong way in life, whatever charity he's been involved in, at the end of the day, he gets back in his Rolls Royce and goes back to Buckingham Palace. <laughs> and he may well be able to show great sympathy for the, the visit, <laughs> but it's not actually entering into their real lives, is it? And if God had simply been God visiting our planet, but not a human being, then we would have had that feeling, well, it's all right for him. <laughs> Does he really know? Does he really understand? And if his solution had simply been from the human side, the manward side, well, that would have been difficult and deficient as well. Because when you think of it, any normal human being, well, we all have that bias in us towards doing wrong and doing sin. So if God had simply saved the world through a human being, then when Jesus came to die, he would have been working out the consequences of his own deficient, sinful life, paying the price for his own wrongdoing, not a suitable substitute for you and for me. So God designs this remarkable plan whereby from both ends of the spectrum, the Godward side and the human side, he comes to rescue the world and does it through this teenage couple. Somebody called Neville Figgis expressed it remarkably when he wrote, this God is little. <laughs> the God who roared, who could order armies and empires about like pawns on a chessboard, this God emerged in Palestine as a baby. You couldn't speak or eat solid, he couldn't speak or eat solid food or even control his bladder. He depended on a teenage couple for shelter and food and love for his very life. And yet God invested in this baby. Not only does uh, Matthew speak about a remarkable conception, he speaks also about a remarkable mission. Why has Jesus come? Well, he's going to be given a special name. A name which will sum up his mission in life. You'll call him Jesus. For he'll save his people from their sin. Now names in those days, they're difficult enough now, aren't they? We're just expecting to become grandparents again in a few months. And we spent some time this week discussing with our son and daughter-in-law, what's the boy? We know it's going to be a boy. What's the boy going to be called? And we ruled out all sorts of names because we had memories of uh, having taught some of them snotty-nosed kids that we didn't want, you know. It's difficult. In the ancient world, they tended to choose a name because uh, they hoped it would express the baby's character when they grew up. Or usually there was a family connection, as often there is now. Uh, Jesus was a name that came out of the blue, as it were. No family connection with it. Oh, it was, truth to tell, a bit of a common name in the ancient world. It was a variation of the name of Joshua that meant deliverer, rescuer. It's a fairly common name in certain cultures today. More than one famous footballer is somehow or another called Jesus, whether they rescue the team or not. <laughs> uh, but 
that was what the angel said to Joseph, you're going to call him. The Jews at this time desperately wanted deliverance. But the deliverance they wanted was uh, from Rome. They actually uh, had fixated on the wrong enemy. They thought if only they could be free from occupying forces and gain their political and social freedom again, all their problems would be solved. Of course, that wasn't true. And if you want a cure, then the first thing that you've got to do is find out the cause of the problem. And uh, while Israel fixated on Rome, they were looking merely at a symptom of the problem rather than the cause of the problem. And Jesus was going to come to rescue people, says the angel, not from Rome, but from sin, because that was the real issue. And just as human beings were finite and mortal and always ended in death, that was the result of their having sinned and having become independent from God. So Jesus, this divine human being, this fully God and fully man, they never questioned his humanity. It was all too real to him. So this person, Jesus, was going to grow to die. Although as you examined his life, it was clearly unjust for if anyone deserved not to die, it was him. There was never sin in his life, never a, uh, a debt that he owed to anyone, let alone to God. There was no penalty to be extracted from the way in which he had lived. And so as one of the ancient fathers of the church, a man called Athanasius, who way back in 300, in the years 300, wrote this little book, St. Athanasius on the Incarnation, one of the most wonderful descriptions of what's going on here. He looks at this life and death of Jesus, and he describes it as a wonderful exchange. His place for mine, your place for his. And in dying that death, he fulfilled all that was required and therefore he liberated people. He defeated Satan, the alien presence who had deceived people. He pulled the rug out from under him by offering his own life when he had no need to do so. And as our substitute releasing us from our debt. So we could indeed go free. Salvation happened in the most remarkable way. Not only does Matthew speak about a remarkable conception and remarkable mission, but he just dwells on who this Jesus was and talks about his remarkable nature. He is Emmanuel, God with us. How is God going to solve the problem? Well, a good teacher solving a problem in a classroom will get down to the pupil's level and will communicate in a way that makes sense to them using simple means. God, in a sense, goes one beyond this. 
He doesn't just come down to our level. He does. He accommodates himself to our humanity. But actually, it's as if, using that teacher picture somewhat, <laughs> he actually sits the assessment for us. He does the work on our behalf. Not entirely sure I wanted all my teachers to do that, but that's another story. But I'm glad Jesus did. I'm glad he stood in my place. He did more than just come alongside us. He actually entered into us, changing things from within. And this remarkable uh, nature of his, when God is among us and with us, means so many different things. It means, first of all, that he entered into our humanity. That's amazing, isn't it? How can the eternal become a mortal? How can the invisible become visible? How can the creator become a created being? How can the sovereign become a servant? How can the Lord of all become a vulnerable baby? How can God, who is spirit, become embodied, enfleshed as a human being? Fully human. Nothing short of humanity in him. The perfect example of what God intended when he made human beings in his own image. And yet fully divine at the same time. You can't think of Jesus without thinking of God because they are so combined together. So he entered into our humanity. It means he also experienced our lives unlike some of our royal family or uh, some of our great philanthropists in the world today. Jesus was not insulated or protected or cocooned from the real struggles that we all go through. When Matthew is writing about this, he's, he's actually plagiarizing uh, Isaiah chapter 7. You know, you're not supposed to plagiarize these days, but the Bible, the New Testament, does it all the time from the Old Testament. And, and uh, he's quoting here from that ancient prophet Isaiah. And when the ancient prophet Isaiah writes about this, he, he goes on to throw in a few details that may not mean uh, too much to you and I at first glance. But he says when this virgin's child grows up, he's going to eat curds and honey. What's the point of saying that? Well, just that that was the ordinary menu of the poor. <laughs> not of the rich. No gourmet meals. Just entering into real life. And he goes on, says Isaiah, to say that before he's grown up and has reached what we would call the age of majority, the land of the two kings in which you currently lead, uh, the two kings that you dread, that land of Israel and Judah, will be laid waste. He will grow up in a, a world of turmoil and warfare and conflict and violence. He won't be hedged about in some special way and 
somehow saved from all that. But he'll enter fully into our humanity. And when you think of it, just go through in your mind the life of Jesus. What is it that you face that he didn't? In principle, at least. I mean, he grew up throughout his life facing the innuendo of an illegitimate birth. <laughs> he fled when young into exile. He was raised in poverty. He was subject to allegation and suffered from suspicion and conflict from the day of his public ministry onwards. He was among the deprived and the disadvantaged in never having a house. He was tried unjustly, executed uh, in injustice with every element of his civil rights denied. What hardship is it that you face? that he didn't. He is able to identify and share with you in the reality of your life. He didn't come to a Disney world creation where everything is wonderful, but to the world we're looking at in our newspapers and reading every day. Uh, what's more, he endured our temptations. Satan came to him uh, to get him to sin. It wasn't a, a sugar-coated life that he led. The pressure on him to sin was far greater than the pressure on you and I, because the trouble is you and I give in rather quickly. <laughs> but he didn't, so Satan ratchets up the temptation. And yet he held firm and kept that sinless life. They couldn't point to any error in him. The only way they could get him was to lie about him. Consequently, we know that he's a sufficient champion able to deal with the temptations and the sin that we face. And by his remarkable nature, there he was able to effect our salvation, dying without a need to do so, except for the exchange that was taking place. He stretches his arms out on a cross and reconnects God and sinful humanity causing life to be forgiven for those who place their trust in him. Yes, his presence in bodily form didn't prevent him from being everywhere in the world. His humility didn't prevent him from expressing his power as we got flashes of in his life from time to time. His humanity didn't distance him from the Father except in that moment on the cross, but rather drove him to it. He had the most remarkable nature, but the nature which alone could provide the solution for our problem. Our God, as John Wesley, as Charles Wesley put it, our God contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man. Who would believe it? Who could believe it? Just after the war, there was a vicar in London called J.B. Phillips who translated the New Testament into the popular language of the day brilliantly. But he wrote some other things too. And at one stage, he reflected on this theme of the incarnation. He pictures a senior angel showing a young angel around the universe and pointing out a rather small 
and dirty planet, known, says the senior angel, as the visited planet. <laughs> it's Earth. Do you mean, says the young angel, that our great and glorious prince went down in person to this fifth-rate bore? Why should he do a thing like that? The little angel's face wrinkled in disgust. <laughs> do you mean to tell me, he said, that he stooped so low as to become one of those creeping, crawling creatures of that floating ball? I do, said the senior angel. <laughs> and I don't think that he would like you to call them creeping, crawling creatures in that tone of voice. <laughs> For strange as it may seem, he loves them. He went down to visit them, to lift them up, to become like him. The little angel looked blank. Such a thought was almost too much beyond his comprehension. It is remarkable, isn't it? But what do you do with a problem like a, a planet gone astray, a world heading for destruction, humanity being undone by deception and by sin? What do you do? Well, if you're God, you become a human being. You rejoin. God and humanity by creating this embodied person, the genuine son of a little young couple in Nazareth who becomes the one who grows to be the deliverer, to rescue the world. Christ, by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. That's whom we celebrate this Christmas. Amen. <laughs>